We are on episode 13 of the Between Two Pines podcast. This week, we have myself, Austin, and my lovely co-host, Mr. Zach. And uh, this week, uh, we were kind of on a hiatus. I know we hit some weird things with coronavirus and a million other things. Uh, So we got a little bit behind, but we're back at it. And this week, um, we got a big heavy hitter interview this week, which I know Zach and I are extremely excited about. Um, We were able to talk to the former uh, wolf biologist for the state of Wisconsin. Um, He gave us a ton of insight on wolf behavior and what they're doing with that. So this one is 100% worth a listen. Um, But beyond that, we're going to talk about some outdoor news. Uh, We'll talk hot gear, cold beer. And uh, Zach will give us a recipe from his cooking corner this week as well. Uh, But first and foremost, Zach, what do you got going on in the outdoors? What did you do this week? This week, uh, not too much. We, we've been getting rain nonstop lately. The river's been out of its banks for forever, it seems. And every kind of good day that we get, it just kind of seems to thunderstorm. So it's just kind of a pain in the butt. But doing a lot of just turkey scouting, trying to roost some birds in the afternoon after work and stuff. Um, I don't think they're getting too fired up at night yet, but I've heard that the mornings are starting to pick up. So I just got the call in the truck and stuff like that practicing on my calling and just kind of scouting areas for now instead of birds and kind of looking forward to that um i actually drew a pretty pretty good refuge tag uh in one of the state refuges kind of close to me where they introduced a bunch of elk actually so i'll be hunting turkeys amongst the elk herd so that should be pretty interesting i'm gonna probably scout that this next weekend yeah no that's uh that's awesome um, and what what are the temps looking like by you right now? Man, today was high of 50, I think. I think the lows are low 40s. But then I think on Thursday or Friday, it's going to be like 77. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you're uh, heating up over there. Yeah, but then it's just going to be choppy after that. 50s, 60s, just bouncing around in there. I don't think we're going to get too, too much colder than 50s, I don't think. No, that's good. So it's heating up by you, but yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. It's getting, getting, uh, it almost feels like spring. We're close. We're close. Uh, we're in fall spring here in Wisconsin. So it's all, <laughs> it's all a ruse. Uh, but, um, yeah, this week, um, for me, um, I went walleye fishing a couple of times, um, didn't get squat. Uh, we've been getting rain here quite a bit too. So the wa- the, the river's up quite a bit. Um, I've been just shore fishing. I'm waiting to take my boat out of storage because as soon as that gets out of uh, storage, which I bought another boat now. I have three boats now. Why? I don't know. I just keep buying boats. Um, They're like boots. You need a different one for different stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, once I get everything set up, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, to get out. I actually on, you know, out on the water and get some good walleye fishing in. Cause unfortunately from shore, you just can't get into those deep holes. Like, uh, you know, where they're really sitting. Um, I started sighting in my bow. Um, seems like it's still relatively sighted in. I've been doing adjustments, but I'm like, ah, it's nice enough. It's like in the forties during the day here. So I've been taking some shots a little bit here and there, and I'm starting to get a squirrel problem in my backyard. So I went and bought some, uh, small game heads, and uh oh yeah so because there is no that it is completely legal to take small game in wisconsin with the bow within city limits so i'm kind of loopholing the laws here um but uh yeah working on turkey calls same thing practicing mouth calls 
um, getting everything ready, uh, uh, you know, checking. I took all my decoys out so that they wouldn't be folded up. They could kind of flatten out a little bit. Um, yeah, and then just making fishing lures, the, the standard stuff. So nothing, nothing overly exciting. I got a question for you. What are you going to do with this stimulus check? Um, what am I going to do with this stimulus check? Um, that is a good question because I, I've already started spending money on like hunting and fishing gear. <laughs> like, oh, I'm getting this money back. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> like I went and bought a bunch of turkey loads. I got, uh, what else did I buy? I'm like, uh, oh, I bought some new mouth calls. Um, yeah, so probably buying a bunch of stuff that I don't need to buy for hunting and fishing, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah, I mean, 1200 bucks that's a good dent <laughs> in some kind of outdoor gear. I think I, I got my eyes on a new mud motor, actually. Oh, okay. Have you thought about doing the conversion motor, getting the Harbor Freight Special, and then uh, getting the conversion? I did that two years ago. That's why I've been running these last couple of years, but... Um... Now I'm going to do one PPF Wood Duck is a company on the motor and they have uh, just a kit for a Predator motor from Harbor Freight, a kit for the Briggs and Stratton motor and a kit for the Honda motor. I mean, I'd and... go with a, a Briggs personally or a Honda. I mean, the Predators, I, I haven't heard bad reviews about them, but they are loud as shit. Yeah, I mean, I like the Predator on mine. I got up to like 18 miles an hour on it with my long tail. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. They they take all Honda parts, so there's yeah. really not that big of a difference. But if you get the Honda, they also sell uh, like the Stouter flywheel and the intake, exo- or the intake and the air uh, filter. Uh, conversion kit to turn that six and a half into a nine horse with the governor removal and everything so yeah that's pretty good yeah that the boat that i just picked up i picked up a bow fishing boat um which i do not need and i'm getting rid of the boat but it had a 35 johnson on the back so i'm slapping a 35 on my on my duck boat so that so oh, yeah. that thing's gonna scoot yeah, it's a 35 on a on a 1648. I'm at max capacity on that motor for at least the rating on the boat. So that thing, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I could probably crack 25 on it now. Oh, easily. I got up to 18 with that six and a half horse. <laughs> yeah, so 30. I mean, with my 15, I could do 17 with my 1648. And so with the uh, with the 35, I think I could double it. So yeah, maybe 30. I might be poking 30. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, so it'll be good. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, anything else? Anything else fun and exciting in the outdoors? Um, no. No. Okay. Don't don't act too excited about it. All right. Well, we <laughs> it's just kind of that time of year. <laughs> All right. Yeah, he's here. He's uh, okay. Um, but, yeah, we, we can uh, get right into the, the news here. Um, I actually want to start. We'll start in reverse order here from our outline. Um, so, uh there's this new thing that's happening in Tennessee. Um, it's kids bear hunting in Tennessee. And I know everyone is social distancing and stuck inside their houses. And it's a nightmare and this sucks. We all know it. Um, but what uh, people are doing in Tennessee, and I thought this was a great thing. Um, it's not bear hunting like you think. Uh, people are putting teddy bears in their front windows and then driving around with their kids, just getting them out of the house so they're not stuck inside all day. 
and then, uh, you know, going quote unquote bear hunting. So just driving around the neighborhood, trying to find teddy bears. People are hiding them in their windows or in their front yard so that the, the kids can find them as they just drive around. Zach, what do you think about this? Oh, that was a pretty cool idea. Um, it looks like you can even mark them on Facebook or just record that you saw them on Facebook or something. Just a new way to uh, get out and keep mom and dad sane and get the kids involved in something other than I'm sure a lot of watching TV and stuff has been going on. So it's just something good to get out and do. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, uh, a lot of places, uh, you know, national parks are closing and state, de- depending on what state you're in, state parks are closing. So in some places you can't even really get into the outdoors right now. Um, so I think this is a good kind of alternative just to, to get the, get the kiddos out and see what's going on. But, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think it's a good thing. Um, for our, our next article here and Zach, actually, I found out that your current state is involved in this. Yeah. Um, a lot of states are waiving their fishing licenses or the need for them because of once again, we're in a pandemic. So, um, yeah. So you want to talk about this a bit, Zach? Yeah. Um, so at least for Missouri, starting this Friday, actually, uh, the 27th of March, they lifted all uh, necessities of fishing licenses just to get people to, again, just keep yourself sane and get out and do something. So uh, you don't need a fishing license. I think it's through uh, April 15th, I believe, and just another good uh, good reason to get out and do something i know other states are doing this this article is talking about maine um through april 30th and uh yeah it's just a neat thing that states are kind of doing i know along well opposite of like closures closures and stuff i know other states in federal lands are waiving entrance fees and things along that lines too to get more people just to leave the house and leave your screen and go do something yeah no i know wisconsin um they're they're waiving all the fees for the state parks so they're keeping the state parks open but they're waiving all the fees so um you can't camp though but all the fees are waived so that's that's, yeah it's a nice thing they're doing trying to uh i think it's a good thing to support people going out you know getting out of their houses i'm sure people are getting pretty stir crazy i know uh i'm fortunate enough where i'm still working so i get out of the house for work every day but some people are not as lucky yeah but okay, so this uh, this is our last one here because uh, this interview is uh, kind of a long one, but well worth the listen. Um, did did you were you able to watch this video, Zach? Uh, I thought I was having a nightmare because this is what nightmares are made out of, <laughs> but it turns out to be a natural video. Yes. Um. So yeah, this video, which I don't think we'll be able to post this one because we'll probably get flagged on it. Um, but a. Long story short, a mountain lion was sighted inside of a, um, uh, I think it was just like in a residential area. I don't know if it was a trailer park. I believe it was a trailer park. Um, A mountain lion in northern Colorado gets sighted, and it doesn't look like that big of a mountain lion, but big enough. And there's probably five or six cops with, like, guns drawn, and then the mountain lion just attacks one of the cops. Just pounces and I do not know how this thing did not crunch on her head. Yeah, I mean it's it's not an adult, but it's definitely not a kit. It looks to be, I mean, 
probably 50, 50 60 pounds, pounds yeah. yeah that's what i would say yeah um like, yeah i think it's had a bit of shoulder and you know you don't really i don't know how close or how how firm it was latched on but i mean there's a lot of a lot of important real estate just above <laughs> that that is very lucky that the mountain lion missed out on oh absolutely yeah this uh yeah, it was, and I'm sure just instinctually this thing was going for the neck. And, uh, yeah, this thing latched onto her, went, grabbed, bit onto her arm or shoulder. And then you just hear, which it was, uh, if the situation wasn't so dire, it would be pretty funny. But it was like, you know, uh, Cletus in his trailer was like, you're shooting the trailer, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so then the, the, the animal was, um, uh dispatched of uh, obviously that you know you don't want an animal that's getting that keen on getting close to humans um but yeah absolutely terrifying video not a fan not a fan at all but yeah luckily the uh the deputies were able to dispatch of this animal and uh they uh they are testing it which i believe and i read a later article that the animal did have rabies but I could oh, really? be wrong. On, yeah, I could be wrong on that. But um, yeah, so that that that's uh, that was really messed up. But good work by the uh, Colorado uh, Police Department there, or whatever municipality that was, um, on not falling victim to a mountain lion that was attacking you. Good job. Yeah. But. Yeah, so that that's the uh, that's the news I believe for this week. Zach, did you want to add anything? Uh, no, let's get into this interview. Okie dokie. And coming up here, we have our interview uh, with Nathan Klug. Big big interview with uh, you know a, a person that's got a lot of knowledge. So we'll cut right into it right now. All right, so this week we have uh, Nathan Klug, who is going to be our interviewee, our guest this week. Um, so, Nathan, first and foremost, do you want to just give us some insight into some of your former positions, what you do, and what you're currently doing right now in relation to the natural resources? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I got my associate's degree uh, back in 2013 at Vermilion Community College up in Ely, Minnesota, where I started um, doing a little bit of wolf work and some some volunteer work um, for the Minnesota DNR during my college out there. Um, and then I transferred to UW-Stevens Point, um, graduated in 2015 with my undergraduate degree in wildlife ecology. And uh, the day after graduation, I drove up to Haines, Alaska in Southeast and was a wildlife naturalist showing people brown bears and bald eagles and taking them on um, interpretive hikes. Um, and then right after that, I, I went down, uh, kind of made a trip back to Wisconsin um, through Yellowstone and everything and, and went down to Tallahassee, Florida and worked for one month uh, at Tall Timbers Research Station doing some bobway quail research, um, just some telemetry and stuff. Um, and then got a job offer over um, in Cowdersport, Pennsylvania to be on their fawn deer mortality study. Um, so during that about three to four month stint, um, we collared about 30 white-tailed deer fawns with, um, 
VHF collars. And then the study I was in after that um, was in uh, southern Wisconsin, their CWD Deer and Predator Project um, back in 2016, I believe. Uh, and that was the startup of that study. Um, and I was one of the, the only people that really knew how to uh, do fur bear trapping. Um, I've been doing fur bear trapping ever since I was in seventh grade, tiny little kid running around trying to catch raccoons and beavers across the landscape. Um, so during that study, I played a big role into trying to find where bobcats and coyotes were and, and putting out a bunch of traps for those um, and processing some bobcats. Um, but also caught about 50 or 60 white-tailed deer and put collars on them and, and did a whole bunch of other tests on them, but um, really great study to be a part of. Uh, after that, I went back out to um, Pennsylvania and was a white-tailed deer uh, biologist aide out there where we were capturing, um, I think we caught 125 adult deer that winter, um, put collars on some, mostly just ear tags, doing all kinds of different trapping efforts for them. Um, and during my off time, I was helping the bear biologist aid out there doing a bunch of uh, bear trapping, um, which led right into me being a, a black bear biologist aide, where I, I captured about 90 black bears, um, put collars Ooh. on some of them, um, and was part of the, the fawn mortality study that I used to be on um, back in 2000 and uh, summer of 2015, I was on that, I think. Um, so, yeah, caught a bunch of black bears, part of that fawn mortality study, which led into a mange study. Um, and then during the mange study, I, I ended up getting a, a job offer to be Wisconsin statewide wolf biologist for the Wisconsin DNR. Um, and it was the statewide biologist for uh, almost a year and a half um, and, and kind of knew that I, I had to get back to grad school or go to grad school um, to be able to continue to excel into future careers. Um, so now I'm, I'm doing uh, black bear research, um, master's student at uh, University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point again. So great to be back home and um, and, and have been in the home state now for almost two years and it's really good to be back and, um, have had a lot of great experiences along the way. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you have had quite the journey in the last, uh, you know, uh, five years. <laughs> that, that's, that's absolutely insane. And, uh, I, I would like to point out, cause you got three UWSP alumni that are talking right now. And, uh, th I think they should be paying me for this podcast because, <laughs> uh, I think this just gives credence to what a great school that is and especially the, the opportunities it gives you. Um, but one thing I did want to touch on, it's, and a lot of the people that we've talked to on this podcast, uh, we like to touch on with these positions and just the natural resources, how, uh, how seasonal positions are and just in your five years. And it sounds like you've had such a, amazing experiences and, and amazing jobs. Um, did you, do you have any recommendations for, someone that may be coming out of college or maybe someone that's in their junior, senior year, uh, how you were able to get these positions and, uh, you know, any tips or pointers on how to get some of the positions that you've had? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and, and being through all of those experiences, I'm really happy to, to meet with undergraduates and meet with people that, you know, want to excel in the wildlife field. 
Um, and I think this is the best advice I can give is, you know, going out of my senior year, um, I applied for, I think, 36 positions. Um, so I was applying all over the country. Um, you need to be really flexible with being able to travel. And that's just going to be a part of being able to get entry level positions and beyond. You need to be really flexible with uh, being able to move all over the place, but also accept jobs that may not be exactly what you want to do. Um, you know, I was really happy to go out to Alaska and spend some time out there um, and got some really good public speaking experience and everything like that. Um, and then going to, to Tallahassee, Florida, um, I didn't really have any interest in Bob White Quail. Um, but it was one of the better job offers that I ended up getting. Um, and I knew that telemetry for Bob White Quail, if you can find a Bob White Quail in, in the grass and pinpoint it within, you know, 10 square feet, um, you can do the same thing for a wolf mortality that's buried underneath the snow or, you know, white-tailed deer out in the hills and mountains of Pennsylvania. So um, I knew that that experience even though it was a Bob White quail, was directly applicable towards my future career goals. Um, so, so taking any job that you can get that, that you know will allow you to gain at least some of the experience that's applicable towards your career goals, and then just being really flexible with, with moving around and doing seasonal jobs um, all over the country. Well, yeah, and uh, I think you brought up some really good points. And one thing that, you know, I tell a lot of uh, the students that I work with and anyone that's kind of looking to get into the natural resources field is you really don't know what a company or, uh, you know, a department or whatever is looking for exactly. That experience with Bob White may be the thing they're looking for, you know, this one skill that you have experience with VHF collars or this particular program. Or anything else like, uh, you know, you really don't know. And I think uh, having a wide array of experience is, uh, at least in my opinion, is a lot more uh, important than just being an expert in one particular thing. And I know uh, and I don't know if you'd want to be able to tell their, if you'd want to tell the story on here. But I know that you after you and I talked, you said for the wolf biologist position, it was you and how many Ph.D. candidates that were going for that same position. And then you ended up with the position. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hit kind of on, on two things that came to mind um, is that when I was hired on, uh, I'll back it up a little bit more. Um, so in between all of those seasonal positions, winter time is kind of the hardest season to get a position. Um, so it was nice to have a fallback. I was working construction for my uncle in Marshfield and I never thought that that construction experience was adding towards me getting a wildlife position in the future. But it ended up coming out that that was a huge thing that was on my, my curriculum vitae when I was hired in, in southwestern Wisconsin um, on their CWD project because we were building um, deer traps out of wood and two-by-fours and and plywood and everything. So they, they really valued me having that construction experience. Um, so just because you don't, you know, you, you have a job that isn't even, isn't even a wildlife job doesn't mean that it, it isn't going to work out in the future for you to, to get better wildlife positions. No, absolutely. I remember when I got hired as a, as a park ranger down in Illinois, the reason uh, where one of the reasons why I got hired was for my experience when I used to work in a mechanic shop when I was in high school 
because they needed someone that would be able to repair equipment in the field yeah. rather than just have it out. And you really don't know how things will, uh, you know, work out. But, um, yeah, it is, that is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so going back to your question um, about um, – can you repeat the, the other question again? Oh yeah, yeah. So the uh, the PhD when you were going yeah. up against the PhD candidates for the the uh, wolf position, I don't know if you wanted to kind of touch on that story. I thought that was very very interesting. It kind of proves the point of uh, sometimes experience is better than education in some cases. Yeah, um, you know, I I was I was kind of surprised by that. Um, I kind of went into that applying for that position, knowing it was going to be a really high level position. It was posted on Texas A and M, so it was an international posting. Or, or at least national. Um, so I knew it was going to be pretty competitive. Um, but I, I also knew that I had a, a lot, a lot of wildlife handling experience. Um, up to that date of applying for that position, I had captured hundreds of animals and, and chemically immobilized them or put collars on them. So I had that field experience and the, the communication skills with talking to people in Alaska and doing public speaking. Um, that kind of had two things that added to being able to be in that position and, and do really well without having all of the, the technical analytical skills that I knew I would have gained um, through getting a master's or a PhD that just weren't, weren't really required for that position uh, being a, a field biologist. So um, even though you may be applying for a position that uh, says that a master's degree is required or higher level education is required. If that is a dream position uh, for you, I would think definitely apply for it, at least getting your name out there. Um, they're going to, they're going to remember you if you're, if you have, you know, good experience um, and at least they're going to see your name come past their desk um, and will recognize it later if you don't end up getting the current position you're applying for. Yeah, absolutely. I tell that to everyone. I'm like, just apply for it. Who cares? The worst that they could say is no. That, that's the worst that they could do. And then you're in the same position you are, you know, at, at the day exactly. up. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, we, we kind of talked about how you got into these positions. And I think a big question, and uh, people, I, I've always wondered this, is what is the average day for like a large carnivore biologist, for a field biologist, what does the average day look like for you? Yeah, um, I guess I'll try to refer it to, to large carnivores with uh, bears and wolves. Um, you know, it, it really depended on what kind of, this, what kind of season you were in. Um, during the summertime is when we're trapping black bears and wolves. Um, May and June are the two months that we have from May 1st to to June 31st or 30th, um, those are the only dates that Wisconsin traps wolves um, because those are the only two months out of the year that hunting and dog training are not allowed. Um, you need to have your dog on a, on a leash. So um, it, it, allows, it allowed us to be able to avoid human conflicts with us putting out traps and domestic dogs getting caught on them or, or people just coming across our traps in general. Um, but kind of the, the overall day-to-day -day, um, during the summertime is, you know, getting up at the crack of dawn, getting in your truck, making sure you have all of your, your capture equipment ready. You don't want to go out super early um, because you could catch an animal uh, right in the morning and you don't want to scare them off of that. 
Um, so around 9, 10 o'clock, you're out checking your traps before the heat of the day to make sure you can get you through your trap line you know, before noon, 1 o'clock. Um, go out, check traps, um, process whatever you had or do re resets or move traps around or relure and rebate every few days. Um, so yeah, May and June are 60 hours a week, seven days, seven days a week. Um, I worked nine straight weeks every day of the week, uh, for nine weeks, uh, during wolf trapping this past year. So, um, but it didn't really feel like work, you know, you're going out and you're actually getting paid for something that I did blood, sweat, and tears since I was in grade school. Um, so yeah, it was really, it was awesome. really rewarding being able to, to, to say that I was getting paid to go trap bears and wolves. Um, but then getting into fall time is when we're doing howl surveys for, for wolves. Um, so you go out into known territories and um, only recommended uh, people that do this are very experienced volunteers or DNR staff will go out into these known wolf territories and howl. You're just using your voice. Um, it, it was proven that your voice uh, has a better response from wolves than any kind of recording. Um, so we'd go out there and howl every mile and a half to two miles and listen for the wolves to respond to us. Um, to at which point you could tell the difference between the adults and the pups of the year. And we could say X number of total packs that we surveyed had pups. So we had 75% success rate in recruitment this year out of the packs in Wisconsin. Um, so, so how does that work with the calls? So you're just, is there like a specific call that you're listening for? Or is it just a number of calls? Um, so I'm just howling like a wolf with my voice. Um, and that's kind of a way to say, hello, I'm a new wolf in the area. And then the whole pack will respond back to you. Um, if, if they can hear you and you're close enough to hear them. Huh. Okay. Is that, is that, now is that just like a, is that a friendly like greeting response that the wolves gives back to you? Or is that kind of uh you're in my territory, just know that I'm over here. And yeah. So you're always calling in a very friendly way, a very long howl that's kind of dragged out. You don't bark, you don't, you know, you don't get real yippy with it or anything. Um, it's a very, it's a, it's just kind of a call saying, hi, I'm here. Is there anyone out there kind of thing? It's not intimidating by any way. Um, and then once we do get a response, we don't call anymore after that. Cause that pack is saying, yup, we're here. This is our territory. We don't want you here. We're, we're trying to sound really big. Um, so if you were to continue calling after that, that could be, um, you know, really intimidating to that pack and could cause them to, to move to a different area of their pack, which you don't want to disturb them with their pups. So we just want to get a response. That would, that would get them pretty riled yeah, up. Yeah, you huh? just want to get a response. That's all we're looking for. Um, and then we, we get out of there and move on to the next pack. Hmm. And and so what is the so what exactly is the purpose of the the research and of the data or what data points are you trying to collect and in what ways are you using that data uh, for the howl surveys? Yes, well for for all of it. So for the tagging for the howling, I mean obviously seasonally it's going to shift. But... Yeah, so basically just a breakdown, kind of one year of being a wolf biologist. It's during the winter time we're doing um, 
we're doing our winter wolf counts through the carnivore tracking program. So we're going out every day um, in fresh snow and, and trying to find wolf tracks going down the road um, and counting them. And that's how we get our statewide minimum wolf count. That's how we know that last year there were 914 wolves in Wisconsin. Um, we coordinate, you know, about 120 volunteers and about 40 to 50 DNR staff that go out every, every season to, to estimate our, our wolf population. Um, and then we do trapping in the spring. That's, that's a way for us to put out GPS collars um, so that we know how big the territory sizes are in different parts of the state. Um, so where wolves are really dense in their packs, you know, their, their, their territory size is going to be a little bit smaller. Where there are less wolves uh, in Wisconsin, um, their ter territories are going to be a little bit bigger. Um, and, and the way we find that is through trapping and through putting GPS collars out. Um, and then we're doing the howl surveys during uh, the fall to be able to figure out how many new wolves or what's our, what are, how much recruitment into our packs are we getting and how successful is a pack in, in their reproductive efforts. Um, because surprisingly enough, only 30% of wolf pups survive to be one year old. Really? And is that from, is that from, uh, um, you know, outside, re is that b because of climate or, you know, weather or other things, or is that, uh, is this from, I don't know if other packs are predatory on pups. I, how yeah, does that there's work? a lot of different factors that play into it. And the hardest thing to measure, um, is what all happens to pups because we don't collar them. Um, but you know, best guesses are, uh, canine parvovirus um, can be a big thing. Simply starvation. Um, as good as people think that wolves have it, uh, wolves live a pretty rough life. Um, so it's it's pretty easy for wolf pups to starve, um, especially if it's you know it's been a hard winter or what have you. Um, but yeah, intraspecific um, strife is the killing of a wolf by another wolf pack. Um, so that's definitely a thing. Um, but yeah, sur uh, survivability in a wolf pack can be pretty difficult from year to year. Huh? Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is just so interesting to me. Um, but I know Zach could probably touch on this uh, a little bit more, but, um, I was curious. And so when you're in the, I guess what would be the summer stages, um, and I didn't realize that you're doing this year round. I thought this was just kind of limited to one season, but um, so when you're in those summer stages, what, what kind of techniques are you using? And I know I listened to one of your lectures and I know you touched on this a little bit, but what type of techniques are you using as far as trapping to get these animals or, you know, what, what are you using? Are you using footholds? Are you using cage traps? Uh, how, how exactly does that Yeah. Work? So, um, everybody that traps for the Wisconsin DNR and we, we do a lot of contract trapping out to wildlife services. Um, helps us out a lot, a lot too. Um, that's USDA Wildlife Services, APHIS. Um, and we're all using foothold traps and all of our foothold traps are approved in the Wolf BMPs, uh, Best Management Practices. Um, most of them are long spring traps, uh, new house number fours. Um, and some of them are MB650s. Some people use MB750s. 
um, all of which are in the, the BMPs. Um, and for the vast majority of people, we're all setting on public roads, public sandy roads. Um, we post our trap lines on both ends and even some, some signs in between to let members of the public know, hey, there's some, some research trapping happening here uh, by the DNR or by Wildlife Services, you know, a hotline number to call. Um, and all of those, those traps that are on public roads are attached to a drag. Um, so you dig a hole, you put a kind of like a, a little hook uh, down in the ground um, with a, an eight foot chain. Eight foot chain is what's in the BMPs to use. It's not too long. Uh, the, the wolf, when it gets caught up, isn't going to have a bunch of momentum, but it's long enough that it's going to get hung up well very quickly. Um, and then we're only setting those traps along roads that have really thick vegetation along them. You would never want to set a, a, a drag trap for a wolf on the edge of a field. Uh, you would never find that wolf. Um, it would run across that field and you'd, you'd lose track of it. So, um, yeah, we, you know, we go according to a lot of really specific protocols and techniques um, that have been developed over the last, you know, 35, 40 years that Wisconsin has been trapping wolves annually and putting collars out. Um, and that's something that I, I really like to stress is the traps, the, the specific traps that we use and the techniques that we use are very humane on, on the wolves that we trap. Um, and there's a lot of research that goes into the traps that we use and the techniques we use um, to cause the least amount of damage so that when we catch that wolf and we let it go with a collar on its neck, it's behaving completely normally. It's not acting like it's injured because that would, would cause bias data. Um, so, yeah. So are you guys, are you guys running like, do you use laminated jaws then um, too? Some of them are, are laminated. Um, some of them have rubber jaws, rubber padded jaws on them. Um, the majority of them just have a, a large offset. Um, and all of the traps have like a welded tack at the base of the jaws that only allows the jaws to, to close so much. Um, none of them have regular jaws or closed jaws. Um, they all have a pretty substantial um, offset in them to allow for circulation. Sure. I know some of those, I, I run a bunch of MB750s for beaver traps and those things are, that's, that's a hell yeah, of a trap. And that's, that's kind of the thing we need to weigh out is we're trying to, to have a trap that is super light and MB750 is a, that's a big trap. It's heavy. And because of it being so heavy, it's more apt to cause damage. Um, so the traps that we use for the state, um, they're, they're double long springs that have a pan that drops off of them. So all you have is the square bottom with the jaws and the two, uh, the two long springs, and it, it creates a really, really light trap once it, once it goes off. The whole pan mechanism falls off of it. Sure. So what kind of, what's your set look like? Are you running like flat sets or blind sets? And then what kind of uh, baits and lures do you use to accompany yeah, those? Uh, it really kind of depends on where you're trapping. If you're trapping along roads that are a little bit more heavily traveled by people, you're of course setting really inconspicuous flat sets. Um, you know, just putting a little piece of wolf scat from a neighboring territory underneath a little stick um, and completely blending in everything else. Um, if you're trapping a little bit more remotely, uh, you can make some pretty loud dirt hole sets that are gonna pull them in. Um, and 
Oh, really? Dirt holes work yeah, good yep, for wolves. Yeah, you can use you can use dirt holes for wolves. Uh, it's basically like trapping a coyote. They're um, you know they're easier to catch than a coyote, but they're fewer and far between. Um, I think coyotes are really sure. really weary because um, they've been trapped historically. You know, all the time they're always having to be super cautious. Um, wolves are definitely cautious, but um, if you get them on the first time around, um, they're they're not all that difficult to trap. Um, but yeah, dirt hole flat sets, blind sets. Um, in some situations, we'll use cable restraints. Um, I never used any of those for the state. We used them for coyotes. Uh, they can be really effective during some, you know, if you get into a really trap shy pack that you are, are just wanting to get a collar out. Um, and of course, all of those have really specific specifications and regulations to set. Um, but yeah, mostly flat sets. Okay. And then, so what are you, where are you using like beaver caster or skunk or anything like that then yeah, on top so of that? It, there's a huge variety of what different trappers use. Um, I was really successful using deer liver. I would just pull over on the side of the road during the spring and <laughs> try to very quickly cut the liver out of some, some car kill deer. Um, yeah, hold, hold, your breath. hold your breath a little bit. You <laughs> want to make sure it's really fresh. Um, and then just different kinds of curiosity lures that you would use for, for coyotes. Um, everybody uses different stuff. Um, beaver liver is really good. Um, and liver is always better than the meat because it's the most nutrient rich. And it's the first thing that a canine is going to eat when it kills an animal is, is its innards. It's, uh, you know, a lot of blood content in those compared to the meat. Um, so that soft, oh, the soft yeah, tissue, the soft stuff, tissue right? stuff is, is definitely seems to be more successful than if you use like deer meat or beaver meat. Sure. Um, I guess another question is then if you run into say just a female with pups, does that kind of change your, your, how you look at trapping or do you not mess with those or what, how do you approach that then if you're trying to get certain yeah, individuals? So if we were to get the, the dominant female, you know, a pack is just composed of uh, mom and dad, maybe some yearlings from the year before and then the pups, um, so if we catch mom or dad, the dominant male or female, um, that would be great um, because then we know that that animal is going to stay in that area for a while. We'll be able to get some really good data. Um, but the yearlings are much more easy to catch. You know, you get a, a year and a half year old um, and they're still kind of naive. They haven't left their home territory yet. Um, and if you end up catching them and putting a collar on them, some of them, uh, you can capture some really great data on their dispersal events. Uh, I captured a wolf down in Clark County, Wisconsin last year um, and put a collar on it. And it ended up traveling over 800 miles, uh, went into Min went into Minnesota what? for a little bit, went down almost to Madison, um, and then ended up in central northern Wisconsin, uh, almost up at Vilas County before it kind of settled down. Um so, yeah, it's, it's really great to be able to have GPS technology now that's reliable uh, to be able to capture those dispersal events. That's G insane. So 800 that... miles, Jesus. That's, yeah. that, that's yeah. bonkers. 
So do they get kicked out at that year and a half age then for like genetic purposes with the uh, not just genetic purposes. Um, I mean, when you turned and went off to, to high school, even later high school into college, I'm sure you were kind of feeling kind of sick of mom and dad and wanting to go and do your own thing and, and, and figure life out and, and, and make your own life. Um, and that's how it is for a year and a half year old wolf. They're, they're ready to get out of there. They are ready to breed, um, and and they're ready to to make their own their own place. Um, so, so that's a chosen thing. They they just decide yeah, to go off. Yeah, that's for both males and females. Um, males are known to have a little bit longer uh, dispersal uh, lengths, but uh, yep, all of them are are kind of itching to get out of there by the time they're a year and a half. Plus, then the uh, the pups of that year are born. Um, so there just isn't enough room or natural resources in that pack territory to be able to support mom and dad and the yearlings um, and the, the young of the year. So they're kind of pushed out and they kind of want to get out anyways. And what is a, what does a typical pack size look like? In the yeah. State so Wisconsin? average pack size in the middle of winter is four individuals. So of course, that would hmm. basically double uh, the average litter size for Wisconsin's packs is 5.1 pups. So five pups they're going to have on average every single year. Um, but like I said, oh, there's only a 30% survival rate of those. Uh, so now you're down to one or two pups um, that are actually going to survive into the winter when we're doing our, our, our minimum wolf count numbers. And see, do you think that's a common misconception? Because I think of, you know, when I think of wolf packs, I guess I picture in my head, and I'm sure this is typical of a lot of other people. So I picture like the Yellowstone packs of like 20 yeah. or 30 wolves. And then in Wisconsin, a pack is four. I, w- I would have yeah, never really you know, guessed. I think um, a big misconception is that when we come out with our minimum wolf count um, in the spring, we say that there are, you know, 900 wolves in the state. Um, but at that same time, that's when all of the pups are being born so that the population looks like it could be twice that much, which it probably is because, you know, five pups or so are born into every pack. Um, and last year we had 243 packs. Um, so add another thousand or so wolves to the landscape and that doubles our population. Um, so, but... Uh, you know, places like Yellowstone have a lot more uninhabited area, you know, talking with humans. Um, so a lot more wild area for animals to roam. And they have a lot more ungulates. Uh, you know, they have deer and elk and bison and, and everything in between. Um, so their prey selection is a lot more diverse, which would allow them um, to have greater densities, um, you know, to have 16 wolves in a pack. Um, I don't know what the biggest pack in Wisconsin has ever been, um, but there have been wolves in the, you know, the beginning of middle of summer uh, where somebody will observe over 10 of them is definitely not unheard of. Um, but by the time winter comes around and during the middle, middle of winter, it's, it's dramatically less than that. Yeah. So I, I worked a lot there? with uh, waterfowl and they kind of have that same, uh, well, I guess my first question is, is that 30% survival rate like their their baseline? So if it's over 30%, then the population grows. Um, 
Not per se. Um, I mean, I think the growth of a wolf population depends on a lot of stuff. And I think it starts with the social tolerance of wolves. Um, you know, at, at this point, over the last three years in Wisconsin, our, our wolf population really hasn't changed. Uh, 2016 was 925, uh, 905 in 2017 uh, or 18, and then and then last year was uh, 914. So statistically, that's not any different. That's one percent apart from year to year. Um, so statistically, there's no change in our wolf population over the last three years, which kind of means that you know wolves where they are are kind of all packed together. Uh, they're all of their territories kind of butt up to, to one another. Um, and the limiting factor for us being able to have a, a bigger wolf population is wolves would have to start moving down into agricultural country, you know, down into the middle of Chippewa County and down to Dodge County and stuff like that, where social tolerance, people just don't want wolves there. Um, and there just isn't, there just isn't room for them to be able to reside there because of all of the human traffic and, and a lot of other factors. So, Sure. Yeah. I just know that working with ducks a lot and waterfowl in general, it's just, there's that magic number of like 32%. And if, if 30, whatever percent of the nesting birds make it with their young, then the population stays the same. Anything over that is just additional yeah, at that point. Um, but so you're saying that they're, they're, it's looking like it's at about carrying yeah, capacity. Yeah, that's kind of what we're seeing. I mean, we'll see what the numbers come out to this winter. Um, but yeah, over the last three years, we've kind of leveled off. And before that, you know, we were kind of in, a, in an exponential growth. Um, you know, you look at a general logistic growth curve. Um, and back in the early 1980s is when we were kind of just barely starting off. And then it took about 15 years for wolf numbers to get up into the 20s. Yeah, but once they got established, they just skyrocketed. We went into almost an exponential growth. We got to the wolf harvest season in 2012. They dipped down quite a bit, and now they're, they pop back up really quick, and now they're kind of leveled off. So, um, yeah, for my best guess, I think we've, we've definitely hit carrying capacity in the state. And so I, this might not be the right point to ask, ask this, but so I don't for, so I don't forget it and we yeah. can move it around later if we need to. But what uh, what's the story behind how wolves got to Wisconsin? Yeah. Like, did I mean, people will tell you that the DNR dropped them <laughs> off in helicopters or people will tell you that they ran over from British Columbia and everything in between. So like how, what, what was the life history like of them? Getting yeah, to I'm really glad you asked that question because I think there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, you know, I, I've heard the same stories. Yeah, the, you know, the DNR got a bunch of wolves from British Columbia and flew them over here and dropped them off. And, you know, each one had their own little parachute. And, you know, it, it may sound ridiculous, but, you know, there are, there's an excellent. Well, did, did, didn't they just do that in uh, what is that Presque Isle? They, didn't they just fly some some Isle Royal? Yeah, or Isle Royal. Yes, excuse me. Yeah, they. they I thought well, they actually so did do they, that. Did they, they went not? there. Um, <laughs> they took uh, a few wolves from Minnesota, a few from Michigan, 
and a few from uh, Canada. And uh, just to be able to get a really diverse uh, selection of, of individuals. And I think originally dropped off about 15 wolves or so, 15 to 20 wolves. Um, and they didn't drop them off with parachutes, but they did, they did release them um, on the ground and, and they kind of had a stash of moose um, moose killed so that they can, they had a food supply to be able to acclimate a little bit and, and reestablish themselves. Um, and yeah, no, sorry, I didn't mean yeah, to sidetrack. That's a whole, that's yeah, a whole yeah, another sorry. can of worms. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, oh, absolutely. But yeah, uh, so back to Wisconsin. Um, it, it, the, the 1800s is when, or bef- even before that's when a wolf bounty was put in place um, and wolves were, you could go out and shoot a wolf and all you had to turn in was the tip of their ear to be able to get your bounty prize. Well, the biggest problem with that was wolves have two ears and wolf ears look a lot like coyote ears. Um, so both wolves and coyotes were being harvested at high rates during that time. Um, and it was up to, uh, 1957 was the last year that, uh, that's when the bounty closed. So not really all that long ago. Uh, 1957 wow. and then finally you know on 1973 74 is when the uh, endangered species act came out and they were listed on it um, and then it wasn't till 1979 that we started the carnivore tracking program the state started that and and found the first wolves in wisconsin and no they were not flown over here but rather you know, very uh, kind of Lake of the Woods area of very northeastern Minnesota has always had wolves. Um, and they kind of percolated, trickled back in through Douglas and Bayfield County um, down back into the state and, and then finally got across the state as they got established and made it over to the UP of Michigan. Um, so, yeah, wolves came in naturally. They were not reintroduced. Um, it's not a Yellowstone situation. Um, wolves re-inhabited the state on their own means, on their own forelegs. Good to know. Would have been a lot cooler. That, if that would be quite know. impressive. Just my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, that yeah, I, w- I was very curious about that as well because I I know uh, you know there I've heard every story under the under the sun as well. Um, but yeah, I guess. Another question, so long as we're on the topic, and this is something that you are the perfect person to ask, and I know I'm sure you get a million trillion questions about this, but what are some of your biggest um, kind of myths about the, or the biggest questions that you get from the yeah, public about questions. the um, And there are, there's one big one that I guarantee everybody has got on their mind. Um, and then there's another one that always comes up during some of the talks that I've, I've given. Um, and I just want to reiterate to, to everybody that's listening that I do not work for the state anymore. Um, I worked there for a year and a half. Um, so this is kind of all off of the books, but um, I'd be giving this the same kind of advice or these same kind of stories if I did work for the state. Um, so just to start off, I think the, the biggest misconception about wolves overall is that wolves are killing all of the deer. Um, you will hear any deer hunter um, say that until they're blue in the face. Um, and sometimes there is just no, um, facts or nothing that you can say to change their mind. And, um, that's the beautiful thing about 
working with wolves and bears and cougars or whatever is that there's not a whole lot of in between. It's either you absolutely love wolves and you want there to be an exponential number or you absolutely hate wolves and you want zero and you want to kill them all. Um, that's kind of where we're at in Wisconsin. Not a whole lot in between. Um, so it, it's, it was very rewarding when I got to talk and give, and give wolf ecology talks all over the state because uh, different areas of the state have very different opinions on wolves. And that one of those questions is, you know, how, well, you know, why are the wolves killing all the deer? Why aren't you guys doing anything about the wolf population? Um, so first of all, we have statistics that we publish, that the state publishes um, in their annual wolf monitoring report, which is on the DNR's website, um, that shows how the, the deer population is fluctuating every single year within each one of the, uh, the six wolf management units. Um, so we have management units set up kind of um, very north, Eastern, nor, Northwestern Wisconsin is zone one. Uh, Western Wisconsin is zone two. There's some little slices in between just, just south of that for three and four. Zone five is basically all of the central forest kind of going uh, through Eau Claire County, a little bit of Jackson County, Clark County, um, down into Juneau County a little bit, um, where there's also a very healthy wolf population. Um, so kind of getting back to the, the fact at hand, um, so the, the deer population is, um, is estimated in each one of those zones and where our wolf population is the healthiest and most robust in zones one, two, and five, we see the bigger increases in the deer population annually compared to zone six, which is basically most of Southern Wisconsin, um, it's a lot of agricultural country. There aren't a whole lot of wolves there, but it's in, uh, it's in that area where some of the deer populations are going negative each year. Um, so, so what you're saying is essentially is that contrary <laughs> to popular belief and just get the spark notes. Cause it's so far, I hear this argument all the time and I'm so happy that you can uh, dispel some of these, uh, these myths. But uh, so what you're saying is that where there's wolves, it's actually showing an increased population of deer. And where there isn't wolves, it's showing a decreased yeah, population I of mean, deer. Yeah, I mean, and that, that changes from year to year. But <laughs> over the last two years is what I'm referring to specifically is that where wolf populations were the highest, we were seeing an increase in the deer population. Um, and why um, do you think I that think is? I think that is because in those areas, there's less impact on humans. Um so uh, a, a big argument that I hear is, well, you know, wolves may, may not be having an effect on deer in that part of the state, but where I live, that's where you guys need to be looking, um, you know, because it's, it's my world is the most important and, and everything else is I'm oblivious to. Um, so, you know, it's just really important to, to know where, you know, where there are wolves, where there aren't wolves. But um, I think wolves are deaf. They are absolutely needed to be able to keep a healthy deer population. Um, but where wolves inhabit the most of the state, it's harder places to get into. 
Um, you know, if you go up into parts of northwestern or northeastern Wisconsin, there's not a whole lot of roads. There's not a whole lot of access into the middle of these wolf territories. And because of that, there's a lot less um, human impact on the deer population during the nine-day gun season when we harvest 250 to 300,000 deer every year. Um, and our impact on the deer population in just that nine days is way bigger of an impact than our entire statewide wolf population on an annual basis. Um, and oh yeah, oh yeah, I can you know, see that we're, for sure. Absolutely. We're harvesting yeah. you know three hundred thousand deer a year. Um, let's just say for giggles that our wolf population is two thousand. Um, each wolf on average is harvesting between 16 to 20 deer per wolf per year. Um, so, you know, that's what, 40,000? If you go 2,000 wolves times 20, 20 deer, so 40,000 yeah. deer that the wolves are taking out. Compare, compared. Yeah, which yeah. is dropping the six. Yeah, it's a six, one sixth of what the 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 right. potential gun season, gun season would hold, um, and that's during nine days. So you stretch that out, and uh, the impact that wolves are having on deer, the deer population, just isn't isn't nearly the impact that people think. But the the thing that people need to look at is that one hundred percent wolves are changing the behavior of deer. Um, so if you sit in your same tree stand that you've been sitting in for the last 40 years, and now that there's wolves on the landscape, you're not seeing deer anymore. Well, continue to check your trail cameras because you're still going to see the same number of deer on your trail cameras through the night. You know, deer are changing their travel patterns and their activity rather than getting up in the middle of the day or, you know, going in into the later morning and, you know, the earlier part of the evening. Uh, they're they're transitioning to going around at night because they have better cover from wolves uh, during that time. So I think that's much just yeah, making it more, more natural. The case that wolves are dictating the behavior of deer, and that's why you're seeing less. The deer are still there, uh, but you're not seeing them because they're not out during hunting hours. It's interesting too that you look at so where there's the most wolves you see healthy positive deer herds and where there's no wolves you have things like cwd and you know all these diseases that are bringing populations down and these wolves just are the thing that keeps deer management is just keeping the population in check and wolves seem to kind of be the the natural in check thing the in checked management tool that the population needs to continue to be healthy because where there's no wolves like Iowa County, Wisconsin, the CWD uh, pandemic is insane. It's like what 40% yeah. of the herd in that County. And that's not where wolves are. So, or as many, so it's just kind of that uh, weeding out to make the whole herd healthier by, you know, just yeah, keeping them in check. It's a really good transition to go to the second point that I had on this um, as some of the bigger hot topics that come up um, is that, well, why don't we take wolves that are causing depredations? They're killing cattle or sheep up in northern Wisconsin and causing problems. Why don't we trap them 
and like you said, send them down in parachutes in in southern Wisconsin in Dane and <laughs> Iowa County where CWD is prevalent and allow the, the wolves to take care of the CWD, curb the CWD spread. Well, you know, what, what people don't really realize is that obviously wolves are not meant to be down there. Yes, we do get dispersers that go down into southern Wisconsin and then realize that, oh my gosh, this is not where I want to be. Um, and they turn around and go back up north. Um, but, you know, first of all, wolves just wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to um, survive down there because of, of human population. But also that, you know, I've, I've worked on two different CWD studies now. Um, so I, I know I'd, I'd like to think that I know a decent amount about C CWD. Um, but there's a three-year and a five-year strain of CWD that allows a deer for up yeah. to five years to not be symptomatic at all, but to be spreading CWD through saliva and feces and, and urine all over the landscape. Um, and those prions are able to stay, especially in clay substrates, for years growing up in the plants. The, uh, uh, not, you know, a deer that doesn't have any CWD eats the plant, it now has CWD. Um, so even if we were to go down and eradicate, I mean, bring the deer population in Dane and Iowa County down to 5%, kill 95% of the population, which would literally be impossible. But even if we did that and then brought new deer in the next year, they would still be getting CWD because it's in the soil, it's in the plants, it's, you know, it's on other surfaces. Um, so wolves just wouldn't be able to solve that, even if they could live down there. But in other areas of the country, uh, they have been shown to curb the spread a little bit where, you know, CWD is, is spreading and, and wolves are inhabiting. So um, it is a way to kind of curb CWD getting into northern Wisconsin and being prevalent in northern Wisconsin, um, but it's not a way to fix CWD. Yeah. That, so that's yeah. Jeez, Louise, yeah, that is. Uh, I, I've never. I well, no, that that's a plethora of information. I and I guess I've never really thought about it from that perspective of using the wolves as a means to control CWD. But I mean, it, it, it makes sense in theory, but obviously in practicality, it doesn't right. really seem feasible. Um, and another thing, and I'm sure you get this one too all the time. What is? And I've often wondered about this, and I'm sure that there is some lack uh some people lacking some some morals uh that try and pull one past here if you you had this as part of your job but what does the predation look like on livestock by wolves and how is that something that you check because i know in wisconsin we do have um what is it like nuisance permits that you could get to to dispatch of of wolves um how does that work? Do you, do you go in and investigate that? Is that something that actually happens? I, I, yeah, I'm just so curious I think how that the, process The works. baseline of this answer starts out with the fact that wolves, since 2014 up to the current date, are federally endangered. They're on the federal endangered species list. They are not at all under state management authority. Um, so the only way that we can, that the state can go out and um, euthanize a wolf is if we get a report of a human health and safety risk. So if, if there's a wolf that's found that's stalking somebody's children 
or you know something kind of outlandish that is not the norm. Um, if they reply to wildlife services, which all of these are contracted out to, uh, the the state of Wisconsin, uh, the uh, Wisconsin DNR doesn't by itself go out and investigate depredations or, or wolf or bear complaints. All of that work is contracted out to wildlife services, uh, USDA wildlife services. Um, so that's the only way that we would be able to harvest the wolf while it's still endangered. Um, and I think that's really important for the public to know because you know, I, I understand their concerns when they think that wolves are having an impact on the deer population or they're having wolves in their background, uh, their backyard that they've never had ever before. And they want Wisconsin to do something about it. Um, but the, the sad fact is that we can't. Uh, they're federally endangered. We have no authority to implement lethal control outside of their delisting. Um, now, there's there's currently a delisting bill that's out right now. Uh, we are supposed to, the state's supposed to hear back by the end of this month, but it got pushed back to um, an arbitrary date of before summertime. So I don't know what that... <laughs> Cla- yeah. Classic government lingo right there. It will eventually. It, so it got I don't, pushed back I don't to quite eventually. know what that means. Um, or what that's going to mean, we're we're going to see. This would be a, this is a full delisting for the entire lower 48. Um, so there's kind of some some implications with that. But um, to get up, not to get off topic too far. Um, so Wildlife Services takes control of 100% of the, um, or basically 100% of the the deer depredate or the the wolf depredations, bear depredations, bear damage. We do have a damage program. Um, so, Wisconsin DNR does, um, but wildlife services are the ones that go out and investigate each one of those reports, and they do investigate every single report that comes in on a wolf um, wolf depredation or bear damage or what have you. Um, so uh, the prevalence of that is pretty low. Um, I think last year we had around 30 chronic farms, meaning that there was more than one depredation at that farm that year and from year to year. Um, I think the the biggest topic that comes up is during bear dog training season. Um, That season is happening in the, you know, the latter part of spring. Um, People are starting to put their dogs out on the landscape. They're running across the landscape, training them on on bear hunting for the upcoming bear season. Um, And that directly coincides with um, wolves and their rendezvous sites with their pups. Um, So after pups are big enough to be able to kind of get around, the wolf pack will move them from the den site and start moving them around to you know, three, four, five different rendezvous sites across their territory, stashing them there at the daycare center, the rendezvous site, while the adults and the yearlings go out um, and hunt during the night. Um, And wolves are very territorial around their rendezvous sites. Um, Just like I'm territorial if uh, an intruder came close to my house. Um, But members of the public and and not even we as the DNR know where all of these rendezvous sites are. So uh, people are sending their bear dogs out to run across the landscape 
at the same time of the year that wolves are really protective over their pups and their rendezvous sites, and that's when dog depredations occur. Um, so we had, I want to say, 19 or 20 or so um, dog depredations this last year. I Don't quote me on those numbers because I can't directly reference any of that anymore. Um, but that's, that's kind of when those happen. And each time we verify one of those, um, those depredations on wolf, uh, on uh, bear dogs, we put out every day that that happens, um, or whenever that happens, we put out a, a post on the DNR, the DNR's website that shows exactly where that occurred and a big buffer, uh, I think it's five mile buffer around that area saying, do not run your dogs in this area there's not a restriction. Um, they're not going to get a fine if they go out and do that. Um, but it's something that I think is really important for, um, for dog owners and for bear hunters to pay attention to um, so that they're not going in and running their dogs in those areas that depredations is ha have happened. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Because I know, and at least, you know, just from the different hunting forums and things that I've seen, is I, I feel like that's the most that I see is predation on or depredation on, on dogs is what I see the most. And that's what the, you know, I think I, I, with this argument is just like with any other one, uh, especially when it comes to natural resources, I think the, um, you know, it's the few that have the loudest voice in a lot of these cases. And I think that uh, a lot of times the uh, dog, the, the people that hunt bears with dogs tend to have a very loud voice in this, which I guess would make sense considering they're probably the most uh, likely to run into a scenario like this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and when there is a, a wolf depredation on livestock, uh, that's when the, the DNR comes in and we implement abatement, mm -hmm. the abatement program. So we'll put up flagry, which is flags along wire fences that kind of causes a lot of noise and commotion. Um, if we know that there's a collared wolf in that area, we can put up a rag box, which is a radio-activated guard box, uh, which is basically electronic device that communicates with the VHF signal of a of a a wolf collar, and when it gets within a, a proximity, a specified proximity of that rag box, um, you can program the rag box to do anything mm -hmm. to start playing the radio really loud, or start strobe lights, or you know. Um, send one of those big blow up uh, like tube <laughs> men that are outside of yeah, inflatable people world do that well, yeah. you know, outside yeah. <laughs> yeah car dealership things so uh, a guy set that up in the middle of his field and his depredations ended um, but as you can imagine if I hide around the corner and scare you I'll probably get away with that you know if I do it every other day for a few days um, and in this case for a wolf, maybe a couple months, but after a while, you're going to start to know that, oh, I bet you Nate Klug, that tricky guy's hiding around that corner and you're going to start to look for me and you're not going to be scared anymore. And that's where some of these chronic depredations happen is that the, the wolves have been, um, you know, kind of habituated to the, the tactics that we can deploy. And at that point, that's where lethal control um, and, and state management authority would be the, the best way to manage that situation, but we are not able to do that um, while, while wolves are still federally listed. 
um, and those those abatement measures are the only thing that we can deploy. Yeah, makes makes sense. And this this brings me to my next my next question, which this is a a very loaded question, and uh, you've touched on it quite a bit. <laughs> Should we hunt wolves in Wisconsin? Yeah, I like it. Um, it is a very loaded question, um, and I want to you know throughout this entire talk, I've been trying to keep myself in check uh, just in case I end up getting a job <laughs> with the DNR again. Um, that they don't listen back at this. Trust me, I'm sure nobody from the DNR yeah. listens to our, our dicky little podcast. But <laughs> uh, I don't know. you'd be surprised how word can spread. But um, so I I, I want to start out answering this question with saying that this is my 100% personal bias. Um, this may not be what the state selects to have happen. Um, Obviously, the, the implementation of any management strategy is uh, deliberated upon by the Wolf Advisory Committee, but currently in state statute, we are required to have a statewide wolf harvest season if wolves are delisted. Okay, and you could leave it at that um, if that's all you want so, to say. I mean, I think that's, it, yeah, it would be so up to the state and up that, to the feds, I guess, really. Yeah, so it's that kind of keeps my personal bias out of it. Um, uh, but yeah, if wolves are delisted, we are required as a state agency to put together and host a wolf harvest season. Okay, may, may, makes sense. And would that be would that be like a quota hunt then, just like they yep, tried to yep, do in like twenty twelve? And and that's where it's kind of interesting because. Um, you know, they want this to be a statewide harvest quota and we don't have wolves statewide. Um, or we, we may not want to harvest wolves in particular zones or what have you. That would all be up to the Wolf Advisory Committee. Um, but yeah, currently right now we're, we're kind of mandated or required through state statute to, to host one and to host it statewide. Makes Sure. So you can't really get right. zone yeah, specific then is what you're saying? Yeah, for every zone. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, well, we're, we're okay, getting close sure. on time here, and you've given us a ton of information. Um, but I did, I did want to ask yeah. you, uh, you know, and Zach, if you have any final questions, but I have one final question for you. What would sure. win in a fight, a black bear or a wolf? <laughs> Ooh, is the wolf it's in a one-on-one? <laughs> One on one, you think the bear would bear. take it, even a black bear? Yeah, I mean, it all things depend. Um, you know, if we're talking about a cub here, then of course the wolf would win, but like a bear cub compared to a pup, uh, I don't think that would happen in the first place. But you know, let's say an, an average adult black bear in Wisconsin's 200 250 pounds, um, compared to a, uh, an average size wolf, which is about 70 pounds. Um, I think that the bear has got claws while the wolf just kind of has teeth. Um, but the bear has teeth and claws, um, plus a lot of body mass. So, uh, yeah, I guess with those factors in line, I think. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Zach, you got any final questions? Uh, maybe just a couple quick hitters. Um, what was the biggest or heaviest wolf that you've I think the biggest wolf with. I ever weighed was 84 pounds, which is a pretty big 
adult male for Wisconsin. The biggest male that I think was ever recorded in Wisconsin that was trapped um, for the state was, it was just over a hundred pounds. Um, Wisconsin, Wisconsin wolves rarely oh, get God. over a hundred pounds. They're big animals. They're very big bone, but they're lanky um, compared to like Alaskan wolves that can get up to a hundred, 150 pounds. Yeah. Um, then another one I have too, which I don't know how much, uh, of this is actually recorded, but yes, can absolutely. wolves get any, mange? Any fur bearer can get mange. Um, and we, I think, I don't know, I don't know what year it was, but, um, early two thousands, I believe we had a mange outbreak. Um, and that was a little bit of a problem. We don't have mange in Wisconsin. Now we see it pop up every now and then in black in the black bear population but it's not nearly as bad as it is like out in pennsylvania um, but yes mange can affect wolves sure okay um i guess then my last question is uh have you been fur trapping personally yeah, so lately and what do you like year, to go for when i was up in rhinelander um it's it was kind of a time where i had become established enough and there's a lot of wild territory out there and a lot of state land um that i was able to get out trap and i i put out a lot of effort for coyotes and beaver this year um caught two coyotes in a week um and then got busy so ended that and um, caught six beaver this year a couple coon a muskrat um and if i'm around you know, if I'm around uh, next fall, um, I hope to maybe maybe have some time outside of my master's degree um, to put out some canine traps. And I really love beaver trapping. Um, so get out some beaver and, and canine traps is always a lot of fun. Yeah. No, I, uh, I just got to southern southeast Missouri in the Ozarks here, and I was able to catch a few gray foxes. Yeah. Those are the first time nice. I ever caught some of those. That was pretty neat. But uh Coyotes are kind of tricky for me this year. Hopefully I can get on some next year, but um, do you ever use any of your beaver meat? That's I had a couple of recipes on some earlier episodes, but I've started to yeah, come around uh, a lot to beaver for meat. For personal consumption? Yeah, yo, I love eating beaver. I, yeah. I ate all six of the beaver that I got. <laughs> um, as weird as that sounds to a lot of people, beaver is yeah. like a mild beef. I think it's great. Right. It is so dark, so rich. It's just unbelievable that it's how uh right. how yeah, most no, people just don't utilize that. I save that. all the all the livers for coyote trapping. So nice. Well, uh well, yeah. Nate, I, I did want to ask deal. you, uh we, so we do a segment and I'll mark this down here. Um well for, first and foremost, I just wanted to thank you so much for giving us all of this insight. This is one of our I think Zach and you can uh you know let me know, but um, I think this is one of our best interviews that we've had. This was uh, just an amazing wealth of information. Um, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this has been my favorite one so far. Wealth of knowledge, and I think uh, I think hopefully our our listeners, as as few as they may be, I hope that they get a, a a lot out of this. And and yeah, I cannot I cannot thank you enough. That that was amazing. Yeah, no problem. I know that this. Uh... This interview kind of, or this podcast really concentrated on wolves. And I know that that's kind of a hot topic, especially uh, in, in today's society. 
Uh, I'd love to be able to join you guys again and talk more about black bears or deer research or bobcat coyote research. Anything, oh, if, anything if, like if that. you have the time, um, we are more than happy to have you back on. Absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. That, that... Hello, Zach. Um, we just had our interview with uh, Nate. Excellent interview. Um, that was my favorite favorite interview ever yes, that was a very good interview and i'm hoping that we could get him back on that would be awesome but uh zach you got some hot gear cold beer for us yeah um this week for hot gear i went to local academy sports recently and picked up uh one of those uh sleeping pads but it's one of those uh inflatable like ones self-inflator uh just like uh, it's just got like the mouth inflator uh, okay. deal or just a little nipple okay. on it. Uh, I think it's the best way brand, but it was a cheap brand, but uh, I'm really happy with it. I blew it up in the house. I didn't pass out from getting too lightheaded. Um, seems like it'll be real slick. It packs down pretty nice. I'm actually pretty excited about it to take it into the tent and camping and whatnot. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, cold beer. I'm shouting out my buddy Garrett over in uh, Iowa. He told me that I got to go back to my roots on some of the cold beer. I'm going with the nice cold hands. Oh, there you go. Best of the best. Uh, Nectar of the gods. Born in the land of the sky blue waters. Hams has always been there. That is, you know, sometimes you just got to get the meat sweats. Love a case (laughs) of the meat sweats. Nice, nice. Yeah, so my hot gear would definitely have to be the Kuyu Attack Pants. Um, they're a really great company. Kuyu is uh, um, just an amazing company. They make some incredible hunting hunting and outdoor gear. Um, these pants I wear out in the field from deer hunting and, and beaver trapping, and they're like wearing p- pajama pants out in the field. Um, and my cold beer recommendation would definitely have to be the dark stout called Dragon's Milk. Um, it's a, it's an incredibly complex dark stout, um, that I recommend. And, and to who, all. What, yeah. Uh, New Holland company. Who brews okay. It? Well, fancy. You're fancy, huh? Okay. Oh, yeah. It's nice. good. It's like 12%. So <laughs> nothing, nothing wrong with that. All right. Well, for me, which I'm getting excited for Turkey season, I picked up a new choke, um, which I'm hoping to use. Uh, we'll see. Um, it is a modified turkey choke. It's by True Glow. It came in a pack with like a little um, fiber optic sight and the turkey choke. So I haven't fired it yet, but it looks pretty solid. It was pretty reasonably priced. Um, I'll see if they open the ranges, which now everything's closed. So I don't even know if I'll be able to, you know, get this thing sighted in and patterned. But if not, I'm just going to shove it in there and hope for the best. Uh, yeah. but uh yeah so that's my my hot gear is this true glow uh item number tg170x i have it in my hand right now um so yeah go pick it up it's pretty cheap um it's got good ratings so we'll test it out um and then for my cold beer um i'm gonna go with uh the uh covid teeny I think our COVID Rita is the, uh, a little emergency, some ice, and then you, you water down the emergency so that you could get it, you know, dissolved and then a splash of vodka. Mm, (laughs) 
keeps you hydrated away from the pandemic and gets a little tipsy. So it's a win-win-win across the board. It's kind of like uh, a newfangled hot toddy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's the 2020 hot toddy. It'll. It's it's <laughs> it's not grandpa's cough medicine. It's millennial cough medicine. So I, I'll take what I could get. That if you if you uh, if you drink that and then wash it down with some blackberry brandy, you're immune from everything. You just get have people cough on you all day. You'll be fine. That's not that's not a recommendation. That's science. <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Heard it here first, and also uh, between two pints podcast, not liable or responsible for anybody that gets COVID nineteen from drinking that. Okay, so um, blah, 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 yeah, blah, blah. it's fine. It's okay. But yeah, um, and Zach, we'll uh, you know we'll move right into it. What do you got for us for some recipes? Ooh, cooking corner. Um, I posted a picture online this last oh, that, week. That did you saw that, that did look pretty tasty. Yeah, that was a pheasant burger. Um, just took a whole pheasant breast. I forget which cookbook I got it out of. Um, just took a pheasant breast, thawed it out, uh, sat it in buttermilk overnight. Uh, just forked it out of the buttermilk and let it drip a little bit. And then I tossed it in a mixture of, I think it was six tablespoons of flour with one tablespoon of cayenne pepper, one tablespoon of salt, and one tablespoon of paprika. Um, so it was a little spicy boy. Kinda, it was pretty dang good. It had spice, just the right amount of spice. And put that in some oil. The oil was, I thought it was pretty important to keep it right around 350. Um, two minutes, flip it, two minutes. And then I went back and flipped it again just to crisp up what already got kind of fried. Mm-hmm. Um but then, yeah, it cooked it perfectly. Put it on a, a nice, nice bread bun with uh, some mayo, pickles, uh, tomato, lettuce. Just made a made a nice sandwich out of it, and it was probably, I mean, it was a hundred percent better than anything. It tasted like Chick Fil A gave me a chicken sandwich. Or <laughs> That's something. awesome. I mean, it was unreal. Yeah, and I and I can attest, pheasant is my favorite bird to eat by far. Um, you know, I know people argue duck, whatever, but I've, to me personally, pheasant is my favorite. I think it's the best tasting. Oh yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to try that with some Turkey if I get one this year. Yeah, too. no, for sure. Yeah. I'm hoping, uh, you know, I'm hoping I could blast one as well. That'd be nice. But, um, yeah, so that's another good recipe. I mean, Zach, what, uh, what do you got going on this week? Are you looking forward to doing anything this week? Um, I don't know. I'm still working too. So, you know, it could be worse, but, uh, I'd also like some extra time off would be nice every now and again, but I was wanting to go over to, uh, Mingo national wildlife refuge. They got a bunch of ducks still hanging around. They're all in their pretty molt colors. And I drove through there the other day, saw some real nice green wing teal shovelers, mallards, pintails. They all, they're all just in full plume. And I just love driving through marshes and looking at birds this time of year, but <clears throat> excuse me but no besides that i'll probably do a lot more turkey scouting and just kind of kind of enjoying the weather best i can i might break out a fishing pole and try and see if some early crappies are biting yeah yeah no for sure yeah i'm I'm hoping to get out a little bit this week but i'm potentially passing a kidney stone currently probably too much information but um so that's kind of put a little damper on uh, what i got going on right now 
Um, so if I'm feeling up to it, I'm hoping I'll, I'll get out a little bit and then, uh, yeah, see, see what's going on out there. If I get fishing, that'd be good. Get some scouting in, that'd be good, but we'll see. I'm probably going to be pent up for the latter part of the week here. So see how that goes, but I think that covers anything. You got anything else? That's all I got. This is not my favorite episode by far. Yeah, so, uh, as always, uh, if you are a professional in the field, uh, let us know, uh, DM us on Instagram and follow us. Uh, you can follow us at between two pines pod on Instagram. You can, uh, get access to this podcast on any of your major podcast providers. And as always, we want to thank you and tell us how we're doing. Like us on Instagram and, uh, Stay in the outdoors. So thanks again.